Oh, Jesus, you are our firm foundation. You are holy and good. And we praise you this morning for the opportunity to gather together in your name. Lord, we recognize the privilege that it is to be called a son and a daughter of the King. And we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus that paid for our forgiveness. As we open your word this morning, we acknowledge that it's alive and that it is for us today. Would you open our hearts and our minds to the message you have for us this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, throughout history, there have been men and women who have inspired masses and caused all sorts of people to say to themselves, why can't I be like that? Or why can't I lead like that? Or think like that? Or compete like that? Or paint like that? Or sing like that? Joan of Arc, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther, Muhammad Ali, Aristotle, Pablo Picasso, Mother Teresa, Albert Einstein. The rapid development of the internet and sites like YouTube have brought us closer than ever to the people that we want to be like. With just a few clicks, we can be sitting in front of a screen but feel like we're in a room hanging out with our greatest idols and inspirations, professional athletes, authors, artists, preachers, presidents, entertainers, inspirational speakers. If you can come remotely close to spelling their name correctly, you can watch an up-close interview. Before long, you can feel like this person that you've never met and will probably never have a meaningful conversation with is an old friend, like you might spend a week in Door County vacationing with your families. Their patterns of thinking and the way that they speak slowly but surely make their way into your repertoire of words. Whether intentional or not, you begin to imitate that person that you're spending so much time watching. Our text this morning is going to deal heavily with this idea of imitation and is going to challenge us on some very specific behaviors. We're, con- we're continuing on through our series in Ephesians called The Amazing Christian, and this morning we'll be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. So if you're not already there, would you open your Bibles? To Ephesians chapter 5, it's on page 1038 in the Worship Center Bible. Otherwise, if you're using an app, I'll be in the Christian Standard Bible. But you're welcome to use whichever translation you prefer. We'll be diving in, as I said, to verses 1 through 20, and we'll see two main ideas that are really born out of verse 1. And verse 1 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Our chapter begins this morning with one word, therefore. Therefore. As we continue on in this book of Ephesians and as we're working through, we're beginning to see a shift in the nature of Paul's letter. Paul, in the first half of the book, has slowly but surely painted a beautiful picture of God's redemptive plan in Jesus Christ to save all of those who would place their faith in him. Jesus died for our sins, Jew, Gentile, slave, free. It doesn't matter who you are. It only matters that though you were dead in your trespasses, you have been made alive with Christ. And this morning, we're going to see a shift from uh, the question of what is the hope that we have in the gospel to what does it look like to live out the truth of the gospel. But before we get to what it looks like to live it out, we have this word, therefore. 
Therefore, in light of the fact that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, but because of God's great love for you, you have been made alive in Christ, therefore be imitators of God. It would be really easy to miss this first point. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Paul could have left out this therefore. He could have just plainly stated, be imitators of God and do or do not do all of these things. But he didn't do that. See, Scripture is breathed out by God and the words in this book are literally the words of the Lord in heaven. And so we can understand this text more fully, not just as Paul writing to us, but as God himself speaking to us. So before God gets to this list of behaviors and this call in our lives to holy living, he wants to remind us why. See, he's not a God who demands blind obedience. He doesn't even expect us to remember our motivation on our own. He constantly reminds us. Psalm 103 tells us that God remembers that we're dust. He knows us intimately and completely, and he knows how forgetful we are, and so he reminds us. We can't afford to miss the reminder in this therefore. God loves you. Jesus died for your sins. The Spirit lives within you. God loves you. Jesus died for your sins, and the Spirit lives within you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but you've been made alive in Christ. You were dead but you're alive. Jesus Christ went to the cross to bear the sins of the world, your sins, because you're a desperately loved child of God. We sang it this morning as we celebrated communion together. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What kind of love must God have for us? He knows everything we do, every thought we have, public and private, and yet he counts not the sum of our sin. Thrown into sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Jesus' love and mercy is long and wide and high and deep and totally surpasses our knowledge, totally surpasses our ability to understand or our ability to have any knowledge of what it is. 2 Corinthians 5 says, when we encounter Jesus and make him Lord of our lives, we literally become something new. We can't see it physically, right? But it's way more real than anything we can see. We're no longer what we used to be, but because of God's great love for us, we are literally a new Creation, something no longer condemned because of our sin, but something purchased by the blood of Jesus and redeemed for the glory of God. Jesus died for our sins. Church, this therefore is ultra important. It fuels the entire rest of this section and really the entire call on the Christian life to walk in holiness. It's really important that you don't miss this. As we walk through this section of text and as you consider it this week, uh, don't forget the therefore. None of what we're about to talk about is meant to earn salvation or favor. That's only purchased by the blood of Christ. None of it's meant to be burdensome. But it is a real call to holiness. And it is a real call on your life. 
Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. In his commentary on Ephesians, James Montgomery Boyce says this. The fifth chapter of Ephesians begins with one of the most startling admonitions in the New Testament. Be imitators of God. It is the only place in the Bible where these words occur, and what makes them so startling is that they point to a standard beyond which there is no other. William Barclay calls this the highest standard in the world. Alexander McLaren calls it the sum of all duty. To Martin Lloyd-Jones, it was Paul's supreme argument, the highest level of all in doctrine and in practice, the ultimate ideal. Yes, this challenge humbles us. We recognize that it's an extremely high standard to which we are called, but motivated by our great salvation, by the power of the Spirit working within us, we get to be imitators, not of some lower standard, but of God himself. What a privilege we have. We all have people that we look up to, men and women who are better at their jobs, uh, at leadership, at following Jesus, whether they existed in history or they exist today. We all have someone we look up to and try and imitate, but we as Christians are called to imitate God and his holiness. The first way we do that is found in verse 2. It says this, Walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. What's the first and most Christ-like form of love that we're called to express to one another? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Since the Father forgave us through the person and work of Jesus Christ, we are to forgive one another. Period. Forgiveness is hard, isn't it? Our spouse hurts us again. Our adult or young children disappoint us and take advantage of us again. Our coworkers burn us or throw us under the bus again. Our parents blow it again. How can we forgive? Right? How, can, how can we forgive? We know they're going to do it again. We know we're going to be hurt again. How? Why? Because God in Christ forgave us, and so we forgive. Some of you are struggling really hard with forgiveness in your life, whether it's forgiving your spouse or a child or a friend or even yourself. You're having a really hard time. Uh, Paul's encouragement this morning is straightforward. Consider what Jesus did for you and joyfully do it for others. So many of these challenges are super countercultural. Starting right here in verse 2 in this challenge to forgive and give yourself. Everywhere we look, we're told to watch out for number one, right? But forgiveness takes a level of self-denial that's often beyond ourselves. No more chance for vengeance. No more chance to sit there and be angry and bitter. My spouse or my child or my boss or coworker comes to me and says, look, I messed up. I'm sorry. What's our response? Joy at the opportunity to show the love of Christ in forgiveness that we've already received ourselves. Countercultural? Absolutely. Worth it? More than we know. Paul says, walk in love by giving yourself as Christ gave himself for us. And Christ gave himself to forgive us, but that's not the only way he gave of himself. And so as we seek to be imitators of God, we have to flip this narrative that goes on in our heads. Rather than asking, what can I get out of a given situation? 
We need to adopt an attitude like Christ and ask, what can I give? What can I give to my spouse? How can I contribute at work and improve my place of employment and add value? How can I help my new neighbor adjust to their new home? How can I give wisdom to that new grandparent or that new empty nester? How can I use my money for the good of someone else? Christ gave himself for us, and therefore we give of ourselves. Our actions need to be rooted in and motivated by the gospel, not selfishness. The ultimate ideal that God calls us to begins with shifting our attitudes and actions away from ourselves and towards a posture of being quick to forgive or quick to pour ourselves out for the sake of someone else. Paul goes on in verses 3 through 5. He says, But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for the saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed should not even be heard of among you. Obscene and foolish talking or crude jokes are not suitable. This wasn't a popular or easy challenge when Ephesians was written, and certainly it's no more popular today. Sexual immorality, right? Premarital sex, pornography, flirting with your co-worker, lust, any kind of sexual behavior that exists outside of God's design for the bounds of a marriage between one man and one woman. Is it countercultural to pursue sexual purity? Absolutely. Is it worth it? More than we know. See, God created sex to be a good gift between a husband and a wife, and when it's used for anything other than that, we're distorting God's good gifts and we're settling for less. So just an upfront challenge here. Uh, if you're engaging in premarital sex or you're stuck in pornography or your relationship with a coworker has gotten a little too flirty, stop. Stop. Do whatever it takes to stop. You're called to holiness and then ask God to forgive you and he will. Jesus died for your sins, all of them. So stand boldly in his forgiveness and flee from your sin. The text flows into something that I'm willing to bet hits home for a lot of us. How you talk matters, Paul says. And in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that what comes out of our mouth is actually an overflow of what's in our heart. And so the question for you is this, what's overflowing out of your heart? Is it foolish talk and obscenity and coarse joking? Or, as Paul encourages, is it gratitude? You may come from a family where rough language is the norm. You may have a workplace where innuendo and off-color humor are commonplaces, and you may never have given two thoughts to the things that you say to fit in with your family or your peers. You may have even justified the way that you talk as missional. Well, if I don't talk like this, then I'll never fit in and people will think I'm weird and well, I'll never get to share my life with that person anyway because they won't want to have a relationship with me. Well, Paul says that holiness in how we speak matters. And so this morning, consider your language. Consider your language. Paul goes on and gives a solution to so many of these problems 
and struggles in, in imitating God uh, right here in verse 4. He says, give thanks. Give thanks. Pastor and author Richard Koken said it like this, the antidote to us indulging our self-serving lust for sexual immorality, licentious impurity, or acquisitive greed is to recognize the true worth of what our loving Heavenly Father has already given us rather than lusting for what he hasn't. And then the fundamental solution to immorality, impurity, and greed is nothing more complicated than thanksgiving because sexual disobedience in Christians is generally caused to some degree by the spiritual amnesia of forgetting God's grace and then feeling sorry for ourselves and entitled to indulge our sinful appetites. Koken and Paul are suggesting that giving thanks is the solution to the sins that so often come clawing at our doors. Give thanks for God's design between a man and a woman in the marriage union when temptation to seek satisfaction elsewhere comes knocking. Give thanks for all we've been given financially and all the things that we've been blessed with when we start feeling greedy and like we really deserve to buy that thing or we really need that raise or we really deserve that and we really needed that extra four grand a year even though last week we were totally satisfied with our income. Most of all, in this fight against sin and this quest to be an imitator of God, we can be thankful for the salvation that we found in Christ. Jesus died for your sins. It's literally impossible to overstate the significance and importance of what he's done for you completely by his grace and mercy. It had nothing to do with what you or I did. How can we not be thankful that. Friends, when sin knocks at the door, don't give in. Instead, turn to your Father in heaven and give thanks for what he's done for you. Paul continues in verse 6 with a warning. He says this, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Well, what's he talking about? What are these empty arguments that Paul Brings up. I don't think we have to look very far to see empty arguments trying to tell us that God's design for things isn't actually that good. In fact, if you flip back to Genesis chapter 3, this is the very, uh, very tactic that Satan used in the Garden of Eden. It says this, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Look, Eve, God's design for you wasn't actually good. It'll be so much better if you know good from evil. Look, Christian, God's design for holy living is too restrictive. It's too hard. It's not good. You'll enjoy life so much more if you just give in and do it. Day in and day out, we're fed the lie that what happens in your head or in your heart is your business. As long as nobody gets hurt, then it must be fine. 
right? It must not be wrong. If it feels good, it must be good, and it must be right. If it's a natural impulse, then how can we believe in a God who would say it's sinful? These foolish, empty arguments have existed for thousands of years, and we're warned here that God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Just like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their disobedience, so those two who try and live in both worlds will have no inheritance in the kingdom. To be clear here, Paul isn't speaking of Christians who fall into sin, right? We all do that. Or even those who struggle with a particular sin for their whole life. That happens. But for those so-called Christians who claim to follow Jesus but ignore God's demands for holy living and instead embrace a lifestyle of disobedience and sin, Paul says there will be no inheritance. Instead, there will only be God's wrath. And so if you found yourself believing that lie that you can live however you want, that lie straight from the pit of hell this morning about God's call on your life, turn away. Turn and follow Jesus. Let's pick back up in verse 7 through 14. It says, Therefore do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Not only are we told not to become partners with those trying to deceive us, we're told to take it a step further and to expose works of darkness. See, sin lives in the dark. It thrives in the dark. It sneaks around and it feeds and it grows in the dark like rats in a sewer system. It controls us from the dark where we can pretend that it doesn't exist. That, that addiction, nah, that's not an addiction. It just, just happens once in a while. That heart of discontent and greed, ah, don't worry, I got it under control. Shine a light on that garbage. Bring it into the light and watch Christ shine over it and watch its power go away and watch it die. Gospel truth in our lives brings about this gospel change in our hearts and our actions. It says, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You were once dead, but now you have been made alive in Christ. Why? Why can't I live like anyone else? What motivates me? Well, not just the fear of God's wrath coming, although that is a motivator, but the joy of the salvation that God has given and the grace that he pours out in our lives day after day. Gospel truth in our lives brings about gospel change in our hearts and in our actions. In student ministry, one question I ran into almost more than any other was this, how far is too far? And sometimes students were talking about the media they were consuming, but usually they were talking about a relationship they were in. And I don't think the heart behind that question is unique to students. We all wrestle, don't we? Just how closely can I toe the line without falling into sin? How much can I handle before I slip up? 
Well, a story is told of a billionaire with a luxury yacht who uh, was interviewing some people to skipper that yacht for him. And so he had the best three applicants come to his yacht to demonstrate their sailing skills for him. And he explained that he wanted a sailor who had high skill and that would also be available pretty much all the time to take his family or friends or clients out uh, into the channel so that uh, he could entertain as needed. And of course, in as a reward for their work, they would be uh, handsomely paid. And so the three men gathered, and uh, the first one takes off to demonstrate his skill, and he gets the yacht up to full speed, and he drives within 30 meters of the jagged rocks that are on the one side of the channel. And the crowd gasps, and the people on the boat are so impressed. The second guy walks up and grabs uh, the steering wheel and gets it up to full speed and drives within 15 meters of the jagged rocks on the side. The people gasp and they're getting a little nervous because what is applicant number three going to do? Well, applicant number three gets behind the wheel and he gets up to about half speed and he steers away from the rocks and right down the middle of that channel. And the people have uh, a relaxing 15 minutes as they enjoy the beautiful scenery in the sky and on either side of the channel. And to the great surprise of the people on the boat, the billionaire gives the job to the third applicant. You were all amazingly skillful, he says, but my yacht is precious and I don't want a skipper who is so confident that he's tempted to drive it so close to the rocks that he's tempted and he may eventually crash into those rocks. One mistake and it's a disaster. I want someone who will understand how precious this is and who will drive out in the middle and enjoy the beauty and the safety that's there. See, God doesn't want us to flirt with disaster. He doesn't want us to ask how close we can get to sinning without actually doing it. Instead, he wants us to cruise safely in the middle of that channel, enjoying the safety and beauty that's found as we sink deeper and deeper into the truth and the hope that the gospel offers and into God's design for good living. Our call to imitate God isn't meant to restrict us but to free us to fully enjoy life as God has designed it to be most enjoyed. The fight against sin will never be easy. There will always be people offering an easier way to live than what we're called to in Scripture. But friends, when you're gripped by your salvation and what God has done for you and you see the darkness for what it is and you see the light for what it is and how God has designed our life to be good around the way that he's created it, how can we not be excited when we're gripped by those things to imitate God as his beloved children? If we ever want to get this way of living to take hold in our lives, first we have to be totally overcome by our salvation. And then we've got to read on and we'll close With this, verses 15 to 20 say this, Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pay attention. Live wisely. Make the most of the time. 
How do we do that? How do we do that? Well, I think Paul tells us right here by being filled with the Spirit. God's Spirit is the only one who can give us strength to say no to temptation in this life and to say yes to God's good plan. So, if that's the way, then what can we do to cultivate more of the Spirit's work in our lives? Unfortunately, I don't have anything profound to tell you here that you haven't already heard from this pulpit before. You know this, but here's what we do. We spend time reading the Word of God because it is alive and it is active and it is for you and it is relevant today and it will change your life. We spend time in prayer, talking to our Father in Heaven, both as individuals and in groups. We get involved with other believers, and Pastor Dan uh, shared some things in announcements this morning, whether it's a life group or a D group or by showing up here on Tuesday nights to Tuesdays at Crossview. You don't have to go it alone in this fight, and you shouldn't try to. Spend time in worship both privately and publicly. Show up to worship services even when you don't feel like it because you need it more than you realize. Teach that Sunday school class. Talk to that colleague about Christ. Invite your neighbor to church. Give thanks always for everything. Just like it takes time to get to know our role models by reading books about them or watching videos or actually interacting in conversation, uh, it takes time to grow in holiness. So be patient with yourself and keep at it. I heard a pastor say just this week, nobody drifts towards holiness. Nobody drifts towards holiness. It takes effort and it takes time, but I promise you there is nothing more valuable than pursuing holiness in every area of your life. You will never regret it. So take every chance to serve Christ in the light. Use every opportunity to proclaim Christ so that more might know of the glorious salvation he so fully and so freely offers. Our charge from God's word this morning is very straightforward and clear. Therefore, in light of all that God has done on our behalf through the person and work of Jesus Christ, be imitators of God. Let's go to him and ask for help. Father in heaven, we're called to imitate you and we recognize that we need a lot of help. Lord, would you encourage us by your spirit in our efforts to follow more closely after you? Would you be there in a still, small voice reminding us of your good gifts and of our great salvation when we're tempted astray? Would you convict us in the areas that we need convicting? Would you give us the strength to confess where confession is needed and to forgive where forgiveness is needed? We thank you and praise you for the shed blood of Jesus that covers all these things. It's in his name we pray. Amen.